Today from the Global Lane, surprise meeting with Blinken in Beijing, frank dialogue or appeasing China to calm tensions. The, the longer that we fail to hold uh, the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese government accountable, the more aggressive that they're going to get. Beyond brownouts, a new warning about an imminent EMP attack and a permanent loss of electricity. Upwards of 90% of all Americans would perish within a year or two with the electricity gone. American evangelicalism in free fall, abandoning church and core Christian beliefs. We're finding fewer and fewer people who embrace biblical perspectives of defending biblical perspectives in the public square. And the tragic slaughter of Christian children by an ISIS-affiliated group in Uganda. They just want to try to take over the uh, the country. They're almost, almost cowardless, thoughtless, loveless people. All they want to do is kill. And it's all right here on The Global Lane. The world needs stable U.S.-China relations. That's what Xi Jinping told Secretary of State Antony Blinken this week during an unscheduled meeting in Beijing. Our next guest believes relations with China must focus on the CCP's behavior, primarily in the area of human rights and genocide against ethnic Uyghurs. Salih Hudayar is prime minister of the East Turkestan government in exile. Salih, it's, it's good to talk with you again. So I'm assuming you feel Secretary of State Blinken missed an opportunity here to raise concerns about the Uyghurs and the issue of human rights. So should he have avoided making the trip to Beijing as tensions between the two countries simmer? Your thoughts? Well, I mean, I think he should have avoided uh, going to Beijing. Uh, first, you know, the first priority should have been demanding that Beijing apologize for violating uh, American uh, airspace and American sovereignty uh, with its spy balloons and other, uh, you know, uh, malign activities and espionage activities that's been carried out, carrying out. Um, however, instead of doing that, uh, I think the Biden administration has been pursuing a policy of appeasement for whatever reasons, um, and they are failing to, you know, uphold their commitments to human rights, their commitments to American sovereignty and freedom, um, and their commitments to, you know, uh, upholding American values. And the Chinese government says the Uyghurs are Islamic terrorists, and the way China manages them is an internal matter. Now, the United States and other nations have labeled China's treatment of the Uyghurs as genocide. doesn't seem uh, that that has swayed China to change its behavior. Why not? Well, because there's no, uh, you know, uh, effective international pressure. Um, the issue of East Turkestan and China, it's not a so-called internal affairs matter, as China cl uh, claims to, uh, for it to be. Uh, on the contrary, it's a, you know, international conflict between an occupied nation versus an occupying or invading nation. Um, it's very much like, uh, you know, the relationship between Russia and Ukraine. Whereas with Ru uh, Russia and Ukraine, you have the international community uh, supporting Ukraine and taking uh, strong actions and measures against Russia. Whereas with our situation, other than give giving, you know, lip service, the international community has failed to do uh, anything meaningful to hold China accountable for its ongoing genocide and other atrocities that it's committing against uh, the people of East Turkestan. And we've detailed a lot of those over the years, uh, the atrocities being committed against the Uyghur people, not just the imprisonment and the forced labor, but also forced abortions, uh, all kinds of things, taking their organs. Uh, uh, so beyond the Uyghur issue, though, Christians are also suffering in China. 
This spring, members of an entire congregation, the Mayflower Church, received asylum here in the United States after they fled persecution in China. So how concerned are you about the treatment of people of other faiths? Well, it's very concerning because the Chinese Communist Party, uh, you know, it's a atheist party. Uh, it views all religions, whether it's Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, or any religions, as a threat to its power. So it's been, you know, engaging in efforts to stamp out religion at all levels. Uh, officially, it claims that it supports religion, but it's trying to, uh, you know, synthesize it to where it's essentially whatever, you know, way that the Chinese Communist Party wants. So there's no, you know, ability for Christians to truly practice Christianity. There's no ability for uh, Muslims to practice Islam or Buddhists to practice Buddhism uh, without the Chinese Communist Party interfering and controlling uh, everything that goes on. What other concerns, Saleh, do you have about the CCP's conduct? Well, the, the longer that we fail to hold uh, the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese government accountable, the more aggressive that they're going to get. Um, as we already saw, even be before this meeting, just last week, you know, they were coming close to ramming a, a U.S. Uh, naval ship. I mean, these are, you know, blatant, uh, you know, acts of aggression by the Chinese government, even before the previous, you know, scheduled meeting that uh, Secretary Blinken was supposed to have with uh, China. You know, they floated their spy balloon across the United States uh, and essentially, you know, slapping them in the face um, in a diplomatic way. Um, even the way that they greeted Secretary Blinken, you know, for other small nations, uh, foreign ministers and government officials, they hold massive, lavish, you know, um, greeting ceremonies. But for Secretary Blinken, there was not even a red carpet. There was very few officials greeting them. So that in itself... Uh, you know, it was a big slap in the, in the face to the United States. And it's, you know, it's shameful that uh, the Biden administration has decided to proceed with that. If it had been any other country or any other administration, they would have just hopped back onto the plane and be like, no, thank you. You're going to disrespect me. Why should I even continue, you know, uh, engaging with you? Yeah, I think they showed more respect to uh, Bill Gates when he visited Xi Jinping. Uh, so what would you like to see happen at this point? What does the Biden administration need to do? Well, the Biden administration first, you know, needs to uh, unequivocally condemn China's ongoing genocide in East Turkestan. They need to make it clear that there can be no negotiations, no trade whatsoever with China until it's in, it ends its ongoing genocide in East Turkestan. It needs to make it clear to Beijing that it won't tolerate Beijing's acts of aggression or violations of American sovereignty or aerospace or, you know, its espionage activities inside the United States. The U.S. government knows everything that China is doing. It knows a lot about you know, all the Chinese operatives here in the United States, it needs to act to, you know, uh, prosecute them and to expel, you know, those diplomats that are Chinese diplomats that are supporting these uh, uh, Chinese operatives. And now spies, a spy center 90 miles from the U.S. coast in Cuba. Okay, Salih Hudayar, Prime Minister of the East Turkestan government in exile, thank you for joining us. We appreciate it. The heat is on. As summer temperatures rise in parts of the U.S., people in South Texas are enduring record high temperatures over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Power grid stresses may cause Texans and other Americans to experience rolling brownouts. But what would happen if the country experienced more than just temporary interruptions in the electrical power supply? 
Our next guest believes an electromagnetic pulse attack may not only be likely, but imminent. Historian Dr. William Fortune is a New York Times best-selling author and expert on EMPs. His latest novel is Five Years After, a political thriller about the aftermath of an EMP attack in America. That's out in August. Bill, it's a pleasure to talk with you. So what would an EMP attack on America look like? What would happen? Okay, EMP, shorthand for electromagnetic pulse. It's created by launching ICBM launch. North Korea would be a likely candidate. Loft a missile 200 miles above the United States, detonate the nuclear warhead, sets up a cascading electromagnetic effect known as the Compton effect. Hits the Earth's surface, feeds into our electrical wiring, and starts shorting out the entire power grid. If they launch three missiles, eastern, central, western United States, it would shut our grid down permanently. Uh, the sad, the frightening figures are upwards of 90% of all Americans would perish within a year or two with the electricity gone. Wow. So why do you think this is likely even imminent? Uh, for a lot of different reasons. Sooner or later, somebody's going to try to do this. We've known about this response to nuclear weapons for 40 or more years. Uh, North Korea is the one I watch closely, followed by Iran and then terrorist third states that might obtain a nuclear weapon. It will happen at some point. I'm not saying it's gonna to happen tomorrow, but at some point it will happen. And that's because you're a historian, you look at military history and the use of weaponry, or what brought you to yeah, that conclusion? Well, you know, a weapon system has never been, you know, uh, designed without being used. Catapults, bows, tanks, nuclear weapons. Sooner or later, somebody is going to use this against an opponent. Who else would be the aggressors here? Uh, China, Russia, they have the technology. Who would do this other than North Korea? Uh, uh, I don't see Russia or China doing it because uh, we would do it back. North Korea actually does already have the capability. North Korea has the capacity to launch a missile at least to the west coast of the United States. And they've had it for several years now. They're the players I worry about. So how long would it take to restore order, normalcy? Would we ever get back to normal? No. Uh, DOE studies several years back indicated that 50% to 80% of our power grid would still be offline five years later. Okay, now let, let's talk about water because people don't don't think about mm. that. I mean, if you live out in the western part of the U.S., you're very focused on water because of the dry conditions. But what would it mean for the entire country when it comes to water supply? Well, I ask you a quick question: When, when you got up this morning, where did your water come from? Yeah, it came from my faucet. <laughs> yes, so yeah, it miraculously comes out of the faucet. It requires electrical power. Electricity is the fundamental building block of our society. We lose our water, we lose our food, about 20 days food is about the max for most towns. We lose medication, we lose command and control, we lose it all. And there's a great emphasis right now, Bill, on uh, electric vehicles. Uh, the president would mm -hmm. like to see us move in that direction. So how about uh, just combustible engines? Well, what are called ICE, uh, internal combustion engine cars. Uh, estimates are any car made after about 1980, uh, anywhere from 10 to 70 to 80% of those cars would short circuit as well. So we'd really be out of luck, wouldn't we? Yeah, and the frustrating thing of it is we are currently spending a trillion dollars 
on green energy, and I support some of that, but we're not spending money on the basic infrastructure of electricity. The average component in our electrical grid is upwards of 40 years old. We're pumping electricity in 2023 in a 1970s, 1980s system. Uh, and we're actually decreasing our generating capacity at the moment, which is crazy. Well, what else do we need to do then to protect our nation and people? Uh, we need to have a robust return to generate electricity in a meaningful way using natural gas is one. Secondly, spare parts. All those spare parts we need, the big transformers, where do you think they're made? China. China, yeah. Uh, we farmed out uh, all the components of our electrical grid decades ago. That would be like on December 7th, 1941, we have to admit, gee, all our aircraft carriers are made in Japan, our planes are made in Germany. We need a homegrown return of industrialization to support the electrical grid. Okay, the novel is Five Years After, the latest in the series from Dr. William Fortune. Bill, thank you for being with us. We appreciate that book's coming out in August, correct? Yes, it is, sir. Okay, God bless. American Evangelical Church in Freefall. Recent findings from the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University found a growing decline in Christian beliefs and church attendance. George Barna is director of research at the ACU Center. George, thank you for joining us. So the American church isn't bouncing back the way we'd hoped for after the pandemic. Evangelicals are in trouble. So tell us what's happening and why. Well, the big picture is when we look at some of the measures that often are looked at, like church attendance, we find that that has dropped since the beginning of the pandemic. A lot of people dropped out of church, never returned. If we look at what's happened in the last six years, uh, you know, there's there's been a very significant decline from 56% of adults attending at least once a month down to 35% now. So that's a huge shift. We look at Bible reading. Uh, over the course of the pandemic, you would have thought that would have been a time where more people would have picked up God's word to get guidance, but turned out that was not the case. And so what we've seen is a decline from 37% reading the Bible outside of any kind of church events during the course of a week, 37% down now to about 33%. And even those people who consider themselves to be Christian, regardless of what their belief profile may indicate, if we just look at those who embrace the name of Christianity, that also has continued its skid over the last number of years. We've gone uh, down below the 70% mark now. We're down at 68%. So for a nation that used to have more than 9 out of 10 of its adults who at least claim to be Christian, now down to 2 out of 3, uh, that, that's something that we need to pay attention to. And what I found most shocking, George, was you're finding that only 55% of evangelicals believe that people are born sinners and can only find salvation in Jesus Christ. Did that shock you? This is a core evangelical Christian belief. Why do you think the church is faltering on that? Well, there are some things that we know that even evangelical churches tend not to talk about very much. Sin is one of those issues. The reality of Satan is another one of those issues. When you start putting together the variety of things that evangelical churches, much less other Christian churches, don't talk about very much, 
you can begin to see why these patterns emerge. And so you've got that. And then also look at the fact that a third of the people who sit in evangelical churches every week would not probably qualify as born-again Christians. Only God really knows. But the, the research simply tries to estimate where do people stand spiritually. And when we ask people what they think will happen to them after they die, and we find that a third of the people that regularly attend evangelical churches do not believe that after they die they're going to go to heaven, and only because they've confessed their sins and accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior, that too is a core evangelical perspective. But you've got a large share of the people in those churches that don't buy it. And you've been doing this for a long, long time. I know you've been doing this for many years. So does any of this surprise you, or do we see the culture starting to creep into the churches rather than the churches influencing the culture? Yeah, honestly, this is a pattern that we started seeing about a quarter of a century ago, and it has simply continued. In evangelical churches, it's been a much slower decline than, say, in mainline churches or other Christian churches. But nevertheless, that decline has continued. And the pandemic was one of those opportunities for it to grow a little bit faster than normally it might have. So I, I think that's what we're seeing here. When we look even at things like people's perspectives on the sanctity of life, uh, we find that among evangelicals, only four out of 10 would say that human life is sacred. And you've only got about half of them saying that abortion for any reason other than to spare the life of the mother or the child is morally unacceptable. So there's rampant biblical confusion or resistance even in evangelical churches across the country. So what are the consequences of, of this then, not only for the church, but our society as well, if this decline in core beliefs and church attendance continues? Well, one of the things that we could suggest is that evangelical churches are losing their theological distinctives. As far as the public is concerned, now one Christian church is pretty much the same as any other. And it's hard to find evidence that that's not the case. Culturally, I think the scary part is that when you look to that group of people in our nation who can stand up biblically against many of the unusual, bizarre, immoral changes that are being proposed in public policy, that are being taught in our public schools, that parents are wrestling with as they're trying to figure out how to raise their children, in all of these areas, we're finding fewer and fewer people who embrace biblical perspectives, fewer and fewer people who are capable of defending biblical perspectives in the public square. And so it's it's one of those situations, I think, where all of us need to sit back and say, wow, am I part of the problem or part of the solution? And if I'm part of the solution, how committed am I to being out there in the marketplace being that solution on a daily basis. Okay, salt and light. George Barna of ACU's Cultural Research Center. Thank you for taking the time to share those insights. We appreciate it, George. Thank you so much. This week, while much news attention focused on that missing submarine and Hunter Biden, some tragic news from half a world away caught our attention. It's a story that is difficult to report because it's about children in Uganda.
At 10 p.m. on June 16th, Christian students at the Mpondwe Secondary Boarding School prepared for bedtime. One neighbor said she heard the children singing a gospel song before sleep. But suddenly murderous mayhem erupted as they were attacked in their beds by machete-wielding rebels, members of the Allied Democratic Forces. But the ADF is anything but democratic. They are brutal and evil Islamic State-affiliated terrorists. Witnesses overheard them shout, Allahu Akbar, as they proceeded to slaughter 41 people, including 37 children. Six children were kidnapped. Male students were locked inside their dormitory and burned alive as the building was set afire. And Pandwe is a Ugandan border town beside the Democratic Republic of Congo. Based in the DRC's North Kivu province, the ADF crossed over the border and launched their planned attack against that Ugandan school. Folks, a year and a half ago, after a bombing in Kampala, the machine gun preacher, missionary Sam Childers, warned us that the ADF would spread more terror throughout the region. They just want to try to take over the uh, the country. I believe that they want to put a threat there so maybe they can get some leeway. They're almost, almost cowardless, thoughtless, loveless people. All they want to do is kill, and it reminds me of Joseph Coney. As he did in response to Joseph Coney in the Lord's Resistance Army, President Museveni has pledged to send Uganda's UDF troops to the border region to defeat the ADF. I interviewed Museveni and many of the LRA victims years ago in Uganda, and it took 20 years to defeat Kony and the LRA. Uganda will need help if the country is to be successful this time. Donald Trump, American troops, and allies defeated the Islamic Caliphate in Syria. But ISIS splinter groups are now operating worldwide, especially in Africa. If the United States can help Ukrainians in their struggle against Russia, why not help our African ally, Uganda? We must do what we can to prevent more innocent Ugandan children from being slaughtered in their beds at night in the name of Allah. Well, that's it today from the Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on the CBN News and NRB channels, YouTube, Twitter, SoundCloud, iTunes, and our broadcast affiliates. And until next time, be blessed.